Hi everyone. Well, recently my wife Beck and I celebrated our 17th wedding anniversary, which just feels like a good excuse to show some pictures for you, doesn't it? Naturally, when you you have your anniversary, you cast your minds back to your wedding day. And so even though 17 years is a long time ago, <clears throat> I found myself remembering lots of things about that day. For example, as you can clearly see here, I'm definitely not obligated to say this, but what I remember first and foremost is how beautiful my wife looked on that day. I remember looking at her radiant in her wonderful dress. I can remember waiting at the altar for her, getting that first glimpse as I turned my head as she was coming down the aisle, coming towards me. A moment that I think I will probably never forget. I remember other things about that day too. We got married in Sydney, Australia uh, at the beginning of January, which in Australia is the middle of their summer. So it was hot. It was really hot. It was 32 degrees, I'm pretty sure that day. Hot enough to wilt the bridal bouquet, certainly too hot to be wearing a full suit and a, and a large wedding dress. If you were to look at our wedding photographs in chronological order, you would probably start to see over time our smiles decrease as we started to get wearier and wearier from the heat. I remember my little niece Abby, maybe three or four years old at the time, and very pleased to be the flower girl for the day. We had rehearsed her role in advance. She was obviously to walk ahead of the bridal party, scattering flower petals before them as she went. Here's the problem: we rehearsed in an empty room, which was all well and good. But what happens when the bridal party enters the church? Everybody stands. Now, when everybody is standing and looking at you, and you're only three years old, suddenly everyone looks very big, and you feel very small. So the poor girl had a moment of stage fright. And had to be politely ushered out of the way, so that the rest of the bridal party could continue their journey down the aisle. Now, of course, once she'd realised that she'd missed her moment, she promptly burst into tears and had to be consoled by her father. And I remember the bridesmaids entering our wedding reception, the, the, the party afterwards, to the Austin Powers theme tune, dancing accordingly. It looks and it, it sounds as good as it was at the time, and it looked amazing. And it was one of those things that you just you remember, don't you? These are the, the sorts of things that make your special wedding day memorable. So I remember a lot of things about our wedding day, but I'll tell you something I don't remember very much, and that's the wine. I know we had red wine. I know we had white wine. I clearly even tasted some of it, as you can see in this picture. But I can't tell you very much about it. I just don't remember. It's one of those details. That feels insignificant now in comparison. Except to remember that maybe I don't think we ran out of it. See, we're carrying on in our series, looking through John's Gospel, John's account of the life of Jesus today, and we're going to be looking at John chapter two, verses one to eleven, which is an account of another wedding that was memorable for very different reasons. So let's have a look at John chapter two now, starting at verse one. On the third day. A wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, "They have no more wine." "Woman, why do you involve me?" Jesus replied. "My hour has not yet come." His mother said to the servants, "Do whatever he tells you." They nearby stood six stone water jars. The kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from twenty to thirty gallons, and Jesus said to the servants, 
fill the jars with water. So they, they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone bring, brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana in Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. It's a good story, isn't it? I want to draw out some observations from this episode of Jesus' life, but before we do that, it's probably good to ask ourselves, why is this story in the Bible? Yes, it's a great story. It certainly makes for perhaps a more memorable wedding than mine was. But why does John see fit to include this story? What does it tell us about Jesus? Well, I think there's a clue in this last verse, verse 11. So let's just have a quick look at that again now. It says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what we learn is that this is the first public miracle performed by Jesus. And yet what's interesting is, is that none of the other three gospel writers, Matthew, Mark or Luke, see fit to mention it in their gospel accounts at all. In fact, none of them even mention the place where the miracle is set, the town of Cana, in their, in their gospels at all. Only John mentions the town of Cana. And the only other things that we learn about the place is that Nathaniel, one of his disciples, comes from there. And later in John chapter 4, we'll see this in a few weeks' time, Jesus returns to the town of Cana and heals the son of a royal official. That's all we know about this town. You know, there's not even biblical scholarly consensus about where in, you know, on the map this historical town of, of Cana actually is. So little is known about it. So you have to ask yourself, in a backwater town that no other gospel writer mentions, whose exact location today is still unknown, Jesus gives his first public miracle. Why? What's the significance of that? Well, you'll remember a couple of weeks ago, David Featherstone really helped us when he talked about uh, the, the account of John the Baptist at the beginning of John's Gospel. Chapter 1, who, when, he, when John the Baptist quotes the prophet Isaiah, who says, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. And what we're meant to take from that is, is that the focus is not on John the Baptist himself. It's not on him. The, the sign is there to point us to the significance of the action rather than the action itself. And the significance of the action is what we see here in verse 11. Jesus, for the first time, reveals his glory. This is the first time in Jesus' life that we see clear evidence of his divinity and a demonstration of his power over the natural world and the natural order of things. Now, Jesus will go on to perform other types of miracles along the way, but his first one is to demonstrate clearly that he has power over the world. He can bend the laws of chemistry if he chooses to. And what's the result of the miracle? Well, it says here in, again in verse 11, his disciples believed in him. They recognized for the first time that they're not just dealing with a spiritual teacher or a rabbi. They have encountered the living God, the God of the universe in human form. The word became flesh 
for us. And so our first response ought to be not to marvel at the miracle itself, but it is great, but to worship the miracle maker. This is a call for all of us to declare, once again, if you've been following Jesus for a long time and you would call yourself a Christian, or perhaps even for the first time today, if you wouldn't count yourself sure, the time has come to declare that Jesus is Lord when you see an evidence of his power like this. Put your hope and your trust afresh in him today because his divinity has become clearly on display for all of us to see. So what else can we learn about Jesus through these verses? Well, I think the first thing for me is that Jesus listens to his mum. Now, I would do lots of things for my mum if she asked me to, so that might not sound too revolutionary, but hear me out. Mary makes a request of sorts, and she's not even really a question that she asks. It's a statement that she makes to Jesus by saying that they've run out of wine. And what's interesting is, is that Jesus' initial response is to push back on her a little bit. He says, my time has not yet come. But because she persisted, it's like Jesus moved his hand. And what I get out of this story is, is that Jesus appears to act in part because Mary asks him to. Mary asks him to do something, and he does it. Now, we have to be careful because in these few words of dialogue that you get between Jesus and Mary, there is so much that is not said. Yeah? And we have to be really careful not to add to Scripture or to attach any more meaning other than the words that we get and the meaning that we get given to us. Some aspects of this story we just have to expect, accept will remain mystery to us. But I'll tell you something, because I know God as a good father, because I have personally seen evidence of his blessings that he loves to pour out on his people in times of good and in times of bad, and because I know that the Bible tells me that everything God does is for his glory and for our benefit, I kind of like to imagine Jesus' internal dialogue going on when he gets this request from Mary. And I, and I can kind of picture him inwardly saying, do you know what? I think we can do this today. Yeah, I know I said that my time has not yet come, but I think we can do this today. I believe this story is meant to show you that you can ask God for what's on your heart and that the power of God is available to us even today. Now, yes, we need to cultivate a relationship with Jesus for ourselves first. You have to know the one that you're making requests to before you can make requests of him, right? But if God is unchanging and God is clearly moving in this story as we read it, then the miracles he bestows in this story are also available to us today. Now, I'm going to say it again, just in case you didn't fully grasp it the first time. The glory of knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior, is that you can move the hand of God. Seriously, you can ask stuff of God and he will grant it to you because he loves you. You can move the hand of God. Now, <clears throat> when Jesus acts on his mother's request, for me, it's got strong echoes of Genesis 18. Now, in this passage, God reveals to Abraham in the Old Testament that he intends to destroy the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah because he's, he's realized that they are such a sinful people. But Abraham, knowing that he is family in those cities, his nephew Lot lives there along with his, his, his um, nephew's family, and not wanting to see them perish, asks God to spare the city. If maybe 50 good people 
can be found in that town. Amazingly, God grants the request. But then Abraham proceeds to further barter with God. He says, well, what about 40 people? Maybe can we, can we bring it down to 20 people? Third, you know, and then finally, God agrees to spare the town if only even 10 good people can be found there. Now again, the point of the message is not to focus on the idea that somehow you can bargain with God, that this is a transaction. That's not the case at all. But what a privilege that we have a God that listens to us when, and our requests when we ask him to, and that we can move the hand of God. What right should we have to be able to do this? Well, none, except for Jesus. Except for Jesus, because if Jesus is your Lord and Saviour, then that means he intercedes for you to the Father God, and that means he listens to your prayers. Now, yes, that should make us stop and think very carefully about what it is we're asking the, the, the King of heaven and earth, the God of all creation, for. <clears throat> but it should also make us regard him with awe and with reverence that the creator and sustainer of the universe hears your prayer and will answer them when you ask them. Isn't that glorious? Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that amazing? Doesn't that make you want to worship Jesus again? And to be honest with you, we could spend the rest of our time talking just about the theology of that fact about God. But let's move on. Here's the next thing we, I think that we can take out of this story. It's that God creates miracles in the ordinary stuff of life. He takes the ordinary things of our life and makes them extraordinary. Jesus chose to perform the first sign of his divinity, not in a synagogue, not in a healing meeting, but at a wedding party, at a dinner, at an occasion of fun and laughter and drinks and food and celebration. A special occasion, to be sure, but a normal part of life. What does he use to achieve it? He uses water, the substance that covers 70% of our earth. He uses stone jars, the kind that, they, that, that were used for washing. Now, by the way, those elements are highly symbolic in themselves, but we actually haven't really got time to explore that now. What we learn, though, is that God steps into our mundane and makes it extraordinary. He wants to get involved in your life, and a lot of the time he uses what, what's already there in your life to do it. In Exodus 4, Moses asks God, how is he going to convince the people that God has spoken to him and through him? And God says to him, well, what's in your hand? And, Mo and God uses the staff that Mo Moses is holding as a demonstration of God's power with Moses. Again, in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 10, God says to Saul, the Holy Spirit will come on you. It's a prophecy that's given over Saul. And then afterwards he says, do whatever your hand finds for you to do, because God is with you. So the question we ask ourselves is, what's in your hands? Jesus doesn't need an elaborate setup for a miracle. This is not magic tricks. He just wants to break into your everyday life and use what is already there. You don't need to come to a church meeting to experience God's power, because the Holy Spirit in you means that you take that power into your workplace and your school and your local shopping center, because God wants to break into those areas of your daily life. Here's the next thing we learn, is that God provides abundant answers to prayer. Now, some quick maths. This is a standard bottle of wine. It's empty. Don't judge me. 
but it's about 750 mil, it's a, so just under three, about three quarters of a litre. You get about six bottles of wine to a gallon, which is an American measure. And verse six of, of these passages we're looking at today tells us there are six stone jars that hold between 25 to 30 gallons each. So that's approximately about 100, 150 bottles of wine per jar, per one of those stone jars. So in total, Jesus provides approximately 750 bottles of wine. That's, a, that's like a pallet of wine we're talking about here. Cases and cases and cases of wine. Now bear in mind, the guests have already drank the wedding dry. So they've already drank a lot of wine you know, before Jesus even gets there. So even if the whole town of Cana, we don't even know how big it is, but we know it's a backwater town. It can't be that, that, that big in population. But even if the whole town is in attendance, that is incredible provision from God, isn't it? It's over and above what they need for that situation. What do we learn? We learn that God doesn't do things by halves. Jesus will later, we will we'll read in John's Gospel, feed 5,000 people, 5,000 men, let alone women and children, in fact, with five loaves and two fish and 12 basketfuls are recorded to be, of leftovers are recorded to be collected afterwards. God, in his great love and compassion for his people, gives us abundantly more than we can ask for. It's amazing, isn't it? We also learn that when Jesus is at work, transformation occurs. Not just in the physical, but in the, um, as, as when he changes an ordinary liquid into an extraordinary one, but in the spiritual as well. What would have meant for that wedding party to run out of wine? It would have been much more than just an embarrassing social faux pas. That wedding family had an obligation to provide sufficient catering for everyone who would come to the wedding, the whole town that they would invite. Because anything less would what? It would indicate a lack of money, so a lack of financial security. It would indicate a lack of concern for their guests, in other words, bad hospitality. And it would indicate a lack of honour for the bridal party who are giving their daughter into this family unit. It would have been shameful. And in a small backwater town like Cana, it's probably not the kind of shame that you'll be able to live down in the future. But one of the key themes of these first few chapters of John's Gospel is the transformational nature of Jesus coming to earth. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. More than water being turned into wine, shame is turned into honour. The wedding is transformed the standing of the family in the community is transformed and the disciples who witnessed the act and now recognize Jesus' divinity for the first time are transformed. And in the presence of a demonstration of God's mighty power, we too are transformed. You might have seen this episode in the TV show, The Chosen, which is a, a television account of Jesus' life, and they, they dedicate an episode to this particular um, uh, story of Jesus' life, the wedding in Cana. And in the TV show, the episode is captured quite neatly when the master of the banquet, on tasting the wine and discovering how amazing it is, says to the guests, let us thank God for this unnecessary but honourable gesture. And I think that's what we're meant to draw out of this, this story. It's overabundant. It's, it's almost unnecessary, but it is so honourable and brings so much glory to God. Finally, what we learn is, is that we have a role to play when Jesus performs miracles. There's a role for human effort in the stuff of the divine. 
we get to play a role in God's transformation work. What do I mean by that? Okay. Jesus says to the servants at the wedding feast to fill the six jars of water and they fill them to the brim. Now, first century Palestine is not exactly known for having running water, is it? So where do they get the water from? They have to fetch it from a well, don't they? How many trips do you think it, it would have taken to bring 500 plus litres of water from wherever the well was in order to fill those stone jars right to the very top? That feels like a lot of effort to me. Do we think that Jesus, who we now know has command over nature, couldn't have found some other way to fill those jars with water if he had really wanted to? As a matter of fact, while we're at it, did he even need to use water at all? Couldn't he have just filled the jars with wine on a moment's notice, on a word, if he chose to? But he doesn't, does he? Because of course he could have done that. Of course he could have brought the wine out of nothing because he's demonstrated he has command over the natural elements. And yet he chooses to involve people around him in the work that he is doing. Which I think is for us as a call to see what God is doing in our lives and to partner with him rather than asking him to come and be with us. Now we're going to learn more about that when we get into chapter 5 of John's Gospel. But it's a real call for us to see God in our everyday lives, to understand what he is already doing and to see how can I get involved in God's transformational divine work. And you know what? We haven't even begun to talk about what might even be perhaps the most remarkable aspect of this story. It's the pronunciation by the master of the banquet in verse 10 that everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine until the guests have, when the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. Jesus brings new wine to the party and in a complete turnaround of the normal order of things, normally old wine is better because it's had more time to mature, but in a complete turnaround, we, dis we discover that this new wine that Jesus has created is better than the old. I think about the end of Hebrews 11, the great list of amazing Old Testament characters who see unbelievable signs of God's power, and yet the writer tells us at the end of Hebrews 11 that although all these characters were commended for their faith, none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us. We are living in the best of times because we have seen Jesus become flesh. We have lived through the death and resurrection and now we have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, which is better than anything the Old Testament people could have seen or understood. The word became flesh for us and everything has changed as a result. You see, these verses are the start of Jesus revealing his transforming power to a world that is in desperate need for a glimpse of the divine. When Jesus enters the scene, situations change. People change. We change. Not just in here, in church, but out in the world, out in our daily lives, in our everyday situations. And so one of the ways in which we can respond is to ask ourselves, what is the out there for me? Where has God put me? And what is he doing in that place that he has already put me? You know, recently I was invited to speak about my career journey to an employee group at my work. Uh, and I was just honest about my career and, and how it's taken me into various jobs, uh, including into paid church leadership for a season, and then back out of church leadership and into the marketplace once again. And I, I made the point of, of saying that this experience has made me, all of these experiences have made me into the person that I am today. 
And what was amazing was, was that being honest about, you know, the fact that I'm a Christian, the fact that I have worked in a church, that I'm still part of a local church, meant that since I, I gave that talk, the opportunities that have opened up to me as a result from people have been amazing. I got to evangelize to one colleague who told me she would never set foot in the church. And by the end of our conversation, I managed to persuade her that perhaps God really does want to speak to her after all. People have started to seek me out for advice to know more about what my background has been like. And I'm seeing day by day in my workplace, in my environment, my day to day, that God is wanting to do something in the place in which where I, that I work. And he wants to use me to be part of that work. See, the power and the provision and the blessing of God is available to you today. Whatever situation you might be facing, ask yourself, what do I want God to do in this situation? How could God transform this with a word, with an action, in a moment, through me? Let's pray. I wonder if maybe one of the ways in which we respond, it would be every day for the rest of this week to pray a, a prayer something like this. God, I thank you that you have revealed your divinity to us. Please come and be part of my day today. And would you change my situation, my circumstance, for your glory and for the blessing of those around me so that others would see you as Lord as in the same way that I do? And Father, please show me what I have in my hands already that you want me to use in the work you are already doing. Reveal your glory through me to others, I pray today. Amen.